You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast. I have David Pemis. He's on the Faculty of Biology and Medicine at University of Lausanne in Switzerland. He used to be at Johns Hopkins. And we're going to be talking about a human-induced pluripotent stem cell-derived 3D platform. Uh, so, David, thank you for coming. No, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to... Yeah, uh, for people that don't know, what are, uh, what are induced pluripotent stem cells? Uh, so induced pluripotent stem cells uh, is basically when you have um, uh, adult cell and then you can reprogram the cells to become again stem cells. So that allows you to get uh, you know stem cells from different patients without going through the uh, you know taking the cells from the embryos. That was uh, a big ethical problem before. So you can introduce uh, certain uh, factors inside the somatic cells and they become again stem cells. So that's basically induced pluripotent stem cells. Right. Which, um, what, what cells are you trying to recreate in your particular experiments? So uh, what we are trying to develop is uh, in vitro models that represent the uh, human brain. Uh, so basically, what we try to differentiate the cells in, we, we're trying to do it in a 3D structure. So basically we generate like a small tissue that has different uh, neuronal cell types, astrocytes and oligodendrocytes, the different types of cells that we will find in the brain. So uh, we differentiate them all together so they are interconnected and has, uh, they resemble a little bit uh, or mimic a little bit what we will find in uh, brain tissue. How, um, I mean, the brain is like incredibly complicated so how much of the brain's function are you trying to approximate with your yeah. spheroid? Yeah, that's a, a good question. So um, in our case, what we are trying to do is um, the application we would use is for uh, toxicology. So uh, we need to find a way that we can find something that is complex, complex enough to kind of uh, reproduce some functionality of the brain, but uh, that is not super complex because when you get like a really complex models, then it's really difficult to have a reproducible system. So in toxicology, we want to have a model that every time we produce this tissue is the same. So then when we introduce chemicals and toxicants or, or drugs, uh, we don't have the variability of the, of the model. 
So in, in our case, what we have is, let's say, the, um, the basic uh, tissue unit. So we have, you know, the neurons that are connected between them and they have a spontaneous electrical activity. Uh, we have the oligodendrocytes wrapping with the myelin, the axons, and astrocytes supporting neurons, stuff like that. But what we don't have is... Um, like the different region of the brain, there's obviously some uh, parts of the brain that have a specific type of neurons or things like that. So we have something that is kind of general so that they reproduce a little bit what will be the general uh, structure of the brain, but don't have the, it doesn't have the, the you know, the par- particularity uh, of each uh, different region in the brain. Yeah, I'm sure they'll be nearly impossible to recreate. Are, are you assuming in terms of toxicology that the substances you're testing have made it past the blood-brain barrier? Uh, yes. So we also have uh, incorporated in, in our model um, a blood-brain barrier uh, system so we can check if the chemicals will pass the blood-brain barrier or not before testing in our system. Uh, but also there's uh, by chemical properties of the drugs, sometimes you already know if this is something that is going to happen most likely or not. But you can also test this in vitro to check if the chemicals will cross the blood-brain barrier or not. And where do you get these cells from? Are they do they start out as skin cells, or I mean, what do they start out as before you uh, bring them back to chloropotency? So um, normally we get them this from from donors. We take it from the skin, and then uh, from the skin we reprogram them to become stem cells. And uh, at the moment we have several lines that are coming from. Um, from healthy donors, but also from some disease. So we have, for example, for uh, uh, Parkinson's disease, we have some autistic lines from uh, autism and things like that. Uh, when we get the glioblastoma, um, uh, that because we also use the model for uh, drug screening in glioblastoma research, then the glioblastoma are obtained directly from uh, from the patient. So when when the, the patients uh, die, then, then they remove the glioblastoma and then we incorporate these cells into these um, brain spheres. So have you seen that um, you know, certain con- conditions do translate to the cells themselves that are preserved even through pluripotency and certain ones are not? Uh, from my experience, I haven't seen much difference. Uh, we, we, we have uh, some... Um, I, there's some studies showing the differences between a disease. Uh, in my hands, I haven't seen that, but uh, there's some uh, studies showing, like for example, uh, some um, schizophrenia patients has uh, a lower myelination in the axons and things like that. However, sometimes it's really difficult to know to know if it's because of the disease or because they're reprogramming. So you have to be really sure that the cells. Um, you know, it could be also by, by the um, variability between uh, individuals, no, because of the disease. So you need to have uh, several lines from patients. Uh, you have to have several lines from healthy patients. And then uh, you have to derive in the same way. So that, because there are different ways to reprogram the cells and differentiate them. Uh, so you have to make a lot of controls and have a lot of lines to make sure that the differences are because of the disease and not because of the variation of, you know, the process. Uh, but there are some interesting research uh, already published showing uh, differences in some disease. Um, when does brain toxicity tend to occur when someone takes a drug? Is it very quick 
or is it happen later on after the, the drug has been metabolized by the liver and other organs? Well, what, what we are doing um, is a little bit different. What we are trying to do is um, to predict uh, the toxicity that will happen in, in humans. So at the moment, you know, the current uh, guidelines are in rodent mainly. So people use uh, rats or, or mice to, to do the different tests to see if a chemical is uh, teratogenic or produce uh, uh, eye irritation or things like that. So what we are trying to develop is a test that is uh, in human, human-based test and also uh, in vitro. So it's faster and cheaper because at the moment the, the problem is that we have so many chemicals without, we don't know what, what, they, are, what they are the toxic effects. And um, the, the guidelines are super slow and super expensive, so it's really difficult to test all the chemicals. So we're trying to find something that is really fast uh, uh, in order to predict these chemicals. So what we are doing basically is to, uh, we are not in the pharma uh, kinetics, uh, so we are not checking how drugs fast, how the drugs are going through the body and so on. We are more trying to identify which chemicals could produce some effects in the brain and that we chemicals that we expose uh, in the environment, for example, the flame retardants that we have in the tables to avoid that they start uh, to uh, a fire, and these kind of chemicals we expose all the time, and we don't know what effects has they, they have in our brain. So where we are trying to develop a test that are cheap and and fast enough to to be able to test many chemicals and better mimic you know human physiology and able to predict better than the animals because at the moment animals have a really uh, bad prediction also in in humans and recently we have also tried to um, study um, also in the drug development field but mostly focus on toxicology also how different drugs will uh, affect glioblastoma tumors uh, but also kind of in the same way. So we are not working in, in how the chemical goes through the body and is metabolized. It's mostly to see which drugs are more efficient to kill the glioblastoma tumors without killing the healthy cells. So this is more or less... Yeah, but the, um, but the issue may be, you know, what if you test all these drugs and they don't look like they have toxic- toxicity, but in vivo, let's say they're metabolized by the liver, and processed yeah. by different parts of the body, and then they're toxic. Yeah, you wouldn't yes. know that without hooking up, you know, a bunch of other organoids from different parts of the body. So you are completely, you are completely right what about do you this. Do? So, well, so what people are doing now is uh, they are trying to uh, develop uh, uh, in silico models. So they are trying to um, uh, do some studies, uh, direct studies into uh, how the drugs are metabolized and so on. And then try to model uh, uh, by in computer by in silico. So they do in computer science. They try to model a, a model that could predict how the chemicals are going to be distributed in the body, how they are going to be metabolized, and so on. Um, so then they try to compare this in vivo and try to see if the models works and things like that. And also there are some people trying now to link this with uh, chemical uh, structure. So they can predict, for example, if you know that uh, these 10 chemicals have a different, similar chemical structure and, um, and they will be metabolized in a certain way or distributed in the body in a certain way, then how much uh, uh, you can predict a chemical that also have a similar uh, chemical structure. And, and that's how people are trying to, to do this.
However, yeah, until probably you go to the, if it's, a, if it's in terms of a drug, until you go to clinical trials and things like that, it's really hard to know like 100% what is going to happen with the drug. But what you want to at yeah. least try to have the safest uh, uh, drug uh, going to clinical trials. And, and it's a big problem at the moment because it's the same way uh, that with, with the animals that, uh, so if, if you check the statistics, how, uh, how many drugs that are developed going to the market, only like 10% of the drugs developed going to the market and mostly they fail in the clinical trials. And this is because the, the, the main uh, model that we have at, at the moment, could, also with the in vitro system, no? you, you are trying to develop something in, in a rat model that obviously is not a human. And, and then you, you use different concentrations per kilogram and things like that. And then when you move to a, a human, then uh, most of the problems uh, with the drugs is uh, related with efficacy or with safety. So the drugs doesn't behave as you were expecting, or, and also they are more uh, toxic than they were expected uh, in, in humans. And that's why all the drugs fail. So there's a big issue at the moment uh, to try to figure out how we can solve this problem and how to, we can make drugs uh, candidates uh, uh, more efficient, the selection of the candidates more efficient, so we don't waste so much time because clinical trials are real expensive. Uh, so you have to be 100% sure that you are going to start clinical trials because uh, people don't have the money to do many of those, right? But if clinical trials are so expensive, why don't the various organoid creators get together and cross-license their organoids so that uh, they can you know, get a much better approximation of what really goes on? Or like, let's say you're going to test you know, 500 compounds this year you know, if you don't create the liver organoids yourself, why not partner with a company that does and send them all the chemicals and partner with yes. them on the results? You know, hey, when you guys run it through your liver chip, <laughs> is it is it are you getting the same thing out as we're getting? You know? Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with you. I think um there's people trying to connect different organoids uh, together into like that's what uh, a few years ago was this huge project in uh, in US that was funded by uh, FDA and uh, DARPA and NIH trying to do the human on a chip. So they will have all these organoids together into, into the chip. And, and there's some publications showing uh, the connection of uh, a few organoids, like for example, uh, I don't know, liver, kidney, uh, but the problem is to connect all the organoids at the moment is not so easy because um, you need to solve the problem of, of having the same media for all the cells. Uh, also have kind of similar states of differentiation in all the cells because you know cells might be in the different stages. There's even some cells that will never be able to completely fuel, maturate. Uh, so it's not so easy to do this. But I, I agree that if people will share more the information, uh, it could be easier you know, to, to reach to a, a good point. However, you know, pharma, don't want to normally share any information about anything uh, that could be profit from them. Uh, in, in sci it's already hard in like public science because you know publications is putting all the pressure so you want to be the first and things like that. But if you move to, far to uh, the pharma companies, uh, it's even worse because you know they know that if they have a really good candidate, could be a lot of money. So if you want to know, you know, how this is metabolized in another organoid, but you don't have it in house, you have to share the information with someone else and these type of things, uh, it gets uh, complicated. Uh, and yeah, also, you know, I know, 
also I think pharma is uh, as all these organoids and uh, organon achieved things are really new. I think pharma is still like a little bit like uh, seeing what what happened and before going into this type of uh, research. And uh, we know because we have some contact with some pharma industry and here in Switzerland, they are really interested, but they obviously don't have yet in-house any of these of those systems, right? So they are talking with us to see how they can use the models and how they can incorporate the, this to the, you know, the pipeline or, or the uh, initial drug screening and things like that. But as it is quite new, uh, I think pharma is still a little bit um, not really into the game yet. Who uh, who first came up with the idea of an organoid and when, do you know? Well, uh, 3D models has, so it depends what you consider organoid because also the terminology is uh, changing in the last years, but um, um, it has been already known for a long time, you know, 3D cultures uh, and 3D cultures that already resemble a little bit the functional part of an organ. And this has been uh, really from really long time. In the case of the brain, in 2013, it was a Lancaster paper that was, I think, uh, was a nature paper. And they were the first time to show that they can differentiate uh, the brain in uh, with the different, uh, with a little bit of the structure of the uh, initial uh, development of the brain. So they have different compartments of the brain with different sections. You know, you could di- distinguish between forebrain, midbrain, and these type of things. And this was in 2013. But there is other organs, you know, like uh, um, liver organoids and things like that that might be uh, a little bit earlier than that. But I would say maybe, you know, for, for the new organoids, I would say maybe 14 years uh, or maybe 10 years. Uh, but there has been already people working on, uh, you know, rat uh, organoids, rat 3D models from really, really long time ago. Um, in making the organoid, you're just making like a, a spheroid. I mean, are the are you seeing that the cells are moving around and rearranging and creating their own morphologies as you differentiate them, or like what do they do? Is there any interesting behavior there? Yeah, yeah, there's there's definitely uh, some. Uh, uh, they they are mimicking a little bit the process that, that we could find in the development of the brain. For example, you could see how. Uh, uh, the different cell populations will differentiate in different stages, right? So, for example, you will see first the differentiation of neurons and astrocytes, and then the oligodendrocytes are coming later on, and then the oligodendrocytes, after a while, they're starting uh, grabbing, producing the myelin that will wrap the axons. Uh, these type of things, you can see them. Also, you can see, for example, a high proliferation of oligodendrocytes uh, in the beginning of the, they start to differentiate, and then how they are, uh, so some of the, they are selecting only the oligodendrocytes that are functional and the other ones are dying um, over the, the differentiation process. And this is something that also happened into, into the normal development of the brain. So you can see these type of things. Uh, it depends how complex is the model. If you go for like cerebral organoids, you can see also how the uh, stem cells uh, migrate and then differentiate over the migration and the different stages of differentiation through the migration and these type of things. Uh, I, I can only talk about brain because it's uh, my, my field, but I'm pretty sure you can see also in other organoids um, uh, how it's uh, mimicking kind of the differentiation that happened in the, in the normal in vivo situation. 
you uh, are you using a scaffolding or how do you make sure that the, um, the organoid forms in some kind of sensible way? In, in our case, uh, we are using uh, a bioreactors. So basically the cells are floating and it has a certain movement to avoid that they grow in size. Uh, because in our case, we want to keep them uh, smaller than uh, 400 microns because when they, for example, the uh, cerebral organoids that we were talking uh, that uh, was published by Lancaster, they grow really big and they have different size. However, they start in getting necrotic centers in the middle. Uh, and that in, in toxicology or drug screening is not possible to use uh, because then you don't know if the toxicant that you are putting is the one causing these uh, necrotic centers or not. So in our case, we are trying to keep these um, neurospheres or uh, brain spheres uh, smaller than uh, 400 microns so they don't get necrotic centers. So we use this uh, spinning movement to keep them uh, really homogeneous in size and in shape. Um, so that's how we culture the, the model. So the organoid forms into like a spheroid shape of, yes, of what, they, they, what yes. kind of typical dimension? They grow around, it's like a, a sphere and it's around 350 microns. Uh, when we introduced the, the tumor, so like I say, sometimes we use this for uh, drug screening for a glioblastoma. What we do is uh, incorporate a few cells of the tumor inside the sphere. And then over the, over the weeks, the tumor is growing and start interacting with the cells in the surrounding. Uh, and then in, in these cases, sometimes you can see that the, uh, tum the, the brain spheres with the tumor grow bigger than 350 microns. But it's because of the growing of the, the tumor. Interesting. Um, all right, so you're modeling these tumors as well and then testing drugs on the, on the organoid with the tumor in it. Yes, yeah, so something that uh, we have, I think we are the first in doing uh, this. Uh, um, they, um, normally in glioblastoma tumor field, the people has been using uh, the tumor uh, uh, derived cells from, from patients and then grow them in 3D. Uh, however, uh, they are growing normally only the tumor cells and they have been testing different chemicals in these tumor cells. However, uh, we know that the tumors, especially glioblastoma, interact with the cells in the surrounding. And, and there's a crosstalk between the healthy cells and the, and the tumor for the progression and the survival of the, of the tumor. Uh, so I think uh, what we wanted to be, to, to be sure that we have the tumor into a, a microenvironment of the tumor so we can also see the interactions between the tumor and the cells in the surround. But also this is really interesting when we do the drug screening because normally drug screening is based on the tumor, right? So you will see the effects of the drugs into the tumor, but you don't know if the drug is going to also affect the healthy tissue because some of the chemotherapies also are, you know, some toxic, they have some toxic effects in the, in the healthy brain. So with this system, you can check the tumor if the tumor is affected by the drug but also if the healthy cells are affected by the drug. And we have incorporated this in a high throughput platform so we can measure uh, hundreds of, uh, of drugs um, at the same time. And now we're trying to get the more funding to, to do um, a bigger test with uh, uh, more than 100 chemicals in, into drugs into the glioblastoma that we have. And as the um, tumor act versus the, uh, the regular cells, do you see differences in behavior and you know oh, yeah. so what do you what do you notice about them that's different 
Yeah, definitely. The 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 first well, first the tumor is uh, growing faster, and normally when we have the the brain spheres, uh, they different when they differentiate when cells differentiate. Normally, they don't proliferate a lot. Uh, in, in, for example, neurons will not proliferate after they are mature. So, in some point, the brain spheres stop growing, and it's just maturating. So they are increasing the connections between the cells and stuff like that. However, the tumor is still growing and. And you could see some markers that are, for example, for proliferation that are really patent, uh, present in the tumor, while in the in the healthy tissue you don't see it. And what we are trying to do now is we are going to try to study uh, what are the molecules that the um, the tumor is secreting to the healthy cells and how the tumor is changing the uh, the, the the healthy cells around the tumor. That's what we are trying to focus now. But definitely. They have a completely different uh, behave, uh, behavior, uh, the tumor with the healthy cells. Yeah, is there any immune system that normally would be there in the brain? And are you able to mimic that in the organoid at all? Or so is that I, absent? No, actually, uh, immune, immune cells are really important for uh, development, uh, for um, glioblastoma development. And uh, in, in fact, uh, microglia, that is the immune, uh, main immune uh, cell in the brain, are really uh, interacting with the tumor and the microglia migrating to the tumor and they are the main uh, key players in in the model uh, from from because of the microglia are derived from different cells not from the uh, initial source of, of what we use and we use neuroprogenitors to make these uh, uh, brain spheres uh, the microglia are derived from different lineage so what we are doing now is in collaboration with uh, Sally Cole in Oxford University. We are deriving uh, microglia from, from iPSCs, and we are incorporating also the microglia into the, the sphere. So we have uh, the brain spheres with the microglia, and, and we already have this in-house, in and we are uh, doing different... Uh, we are trying to activate the microglia with different uh, stimulus with uh, inflammation, cytokines, and things like that. And, and what we are trying to do now is also to incorporate the tumor and see uh, how different, for example, we, we are trying different drugs, like for example, doxorubicin or temazolamide, and we want to see if the sensitivity of the uh, drugs change when we have the microglia into our model. So that's something that we are working on uh, because we know that microglia is really important for uh, the, uh, the glioblastoma development. So we are trying now to solve that issue and hopefully mm. we will get some interesting results in the next year. Um, this is a weird question, but could you ever grow an organoid just from cancer cells? Do they differentiate and form any structures or they just seem to just go on a dividing rampage and they don't bother to uh, <clears throat> differentiate or anything? Actually, when uh, in in the in the in the glioblastoma field, when they uh, take uh, a glioblastoma from a patient and they uh, do some cultures derived from this glioblastoma, in many cases they call them organoids already uh, to these models in 3D because glioblastoma is also um, it's not really homogeneous, so have different cell types into the glioblastoma, and also you can see certain kind of structure, and uh, so. It is not like the, the glioblastoma is simulating any um, like organ, but they are they have their own structure into the the the, the, the glioblastoma tumor per se. 
So they, they start getting necrotic centers and that will uh, help to secrete some growth factors that will bring the vasculature and things like that. And, and you can see how cells are distributed differently into the, the tumor. So there, there are many people already call them uh, uh, organoids to these uh, tumors per se, because they have a kind of uh, a specific structure. I, yeah, I just wonder, I mean, could you make, so you literally could have a, a a brain organoid that is entirely cancer cells and would it look anything like an organoid of healthy cells? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You could have, uh, so basically, um, the, the word organoid from, from my opinion, it means that they simulating something that is happening in vivo. So you can have mm -hmm. an organoid that is simulating what is the brain and you can have an organoid that's simulating the tumor. Right. So, they are they are completely different. One is simulating, uh, like me trying to represent uh, like a healthy tissue, and the other one is trying to represent more like a tumoral tissue. But it's a problem with the with the definition at the moment because people call mm -hmm. some things organoids, and other people don't consider these organoids. Other people say that they are organotypic cultures and uh, microphysiological systems. And at the moment, it's a little bit. Uh, uh, weird all this definition and also yeah, because yeah. you know people in cancer has been calling these organoids for a long time and now uh, we use the word for other things and uh, it's kind of confusing mm, it makes sense so any any really interesting things that you've discovered recently from your work on these organoids that you can talk about anything that jumps out at you that was really surprising uh, well the i think the most interesting thing that we have been um uh well, I, I, like I say, we are more into the testing uh, field. Uh, so something that we uh, has been uh, studying lately has been uh, antidepressive uh, drug that uh, people, pregnant women normally uh, could take it because of the pregnant uh, depression. And uh, we have been studying uh, the effects of this drug in the uh, brain development. And what we have uh, is uh, developed on and I say a test that has uh, different endpoints that uh, uh, measure different uh, key events uh, during the brain development, like, for example, neuroagro, synastogenesis, uh, myelin formation, oligodendrocytes maturation, so several things into the same model. And we have tried to use, uh, we try uh, to, we, to, we, so we have tested the drug in, um, with a blood concentration that uh, pregnant women will have. And we have tested in our system and we have been able to see some effects in the brain development into our test, indicating that uh, this drug might have some effects uh, in the development of the brain uh, when the pregnant women are taking. And that could be, you know, really interesting to, to see. If it's the case, then we should um, uh, Put the alarm, you know, in the uh, in the government, so we can restrict the use uh, of these drugs. Yeah. So some of the organoids are are, are they made from male lineages uh, or female lineages, and is there any difference when you culture them? So we have uh, we have uh, several lines. We have from male and from female. Uh, we haven't seen differences in terms of differentiation. Uh, at least the one the lines that we have. Um, we, we, when we haven't done any study uh, comparing uh, um, female and, and uh, female at the moment, male and female at the moment, but we don't see differences in terms of differentiation. Uh, but there might be some differences in terms of uh, uh, transcriptomics or, or some proteins might be different. Um, 
but as we don't have the hormones uh, into the differentiation process, and hormones might be really important in to see the differences between sex, uh, between female and male, uh, we haven't seen yet anything at the moment. So, but I don't say, I don't know, I don't know because we don't work in, in that field a lot, but I know that many people now are trying to see the differences between uh, men and, and women lines. There's obviously uh, differences between individuals. Uh, so there's uh, some polymorphism that might make some lines more sensitive to certain chemicals than others. And that's why it's important that uh, to study not only one line and when you test a chemical, you want to have a several lines. So you at least have a little bit of uh, heterogeneity in terms of uh, polymorphism and things like that. And one thing I haven't asked, I forgot, is uh, how do the uh, the organoids get food, you know, nutrients and oxygen? How do they respirate and how do they get food? Mm. Well, uh, we so when they are like in the, in the media and in the media has already the nutrients that they need. To, um, they basically absorb the nutrients from the uh, media. So it will be like extracellular nutrients. Uh, um, uh, the, the, the extracellular matrix will provide the, the nutrients. Uh, the oxygen also, they, uh, as we don't have vasculature, and at the moment there is no much advance in uh, trying to put vasculature in the organoids, they also have to get the oxygen through the, um, basically uh, taking from, from the media without any vasculature that brings the, the oxygen. And that's why, you know, when you get a really big organoids, you start seeing how the cells in the middle are dying because the oxygen cannot fuse into the centers of the of these organoids and i i i know there is already some uh publication showing that they are trying to uh generate also a vasculature into the organoids so then the oxygen will will be able to reach all cells into the organoids but uh, at the moment you can only see like uh, there is no complete the vessels and it's not completely functional yet. But I know there are some people trying to work on this uh, to be able to reach the, uh, the oxygen in all the cells. Uh, also, you know, many people use uh, like uh, bioreactors or shakings. Uh, so the, the cells are in movement and they can, uh, uh, you can uh, have a higher interchange of oxygen between the media and the uh, incubators, uh, but that's only limited. So you, you cannot get really big uh, tissue without vasculature because, you know, not all the cells will be able to get the nutrients and the oxygen. Okay, got it. Well, very good. So what's the best way for people to find out more about your work and maybe uh, contact you and interact? Um, well, there is, uh, <laughs> if they want to contact me, they can look for me in the, uh, the website of the university of the Department of Physiology in La Lausanne University. Uh, there's also, if there is scientists interested, uh, they can look for my publications. And uh, I'm the corresponding author in most of the last publications. So my email is there so they can contact me. And um, uh, yep. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So. Anyway. That's great. Well, David, thank you for coming. It's been a very good call. Thank you very much for having me. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. 
Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, or even starting to appear on shelves, or by prescription, or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.